Hello and welcome to episode 242 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we break out our whips and hats one last time for a review of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. But first, how are you, Scott? Doing well. Happy 4th of July. You know, usually we do these bits where if we know that an episode is coming out around a holiday, we'll wish each other a happy holiday or whatever it is on the podcast. This time, we're actually we're recording on the 4th. So uh, no no bit here. It is sincere. Happy 4th of July. I don't know. I know that you've also had a busy weekend. I've, we both have traveled this weekend. You went back to Chattanooga. I'm down in Florida. So we've both been very busy, but we did squeeze in time to to see the film, of course. But yeah, it's been, I'm good. I'm feeling refreshed. You know, I have had four days off now in a row. This, what, this is nice because just because I had the long weekend and they gave us Monday off as well. So yeah, I'm feeling refreshed. I'm feeling invigorated by the Florida sunshine. So I'm ready to go. Yeah, no, it, it has been nice. I also had, you know, today and Monday off. Uh, I, I had to take Monday off, but I did sure. take Monday off. Um, and then I'm going to work the rest of the week. And then actually next week I'm off the entire week because um, Going to Boston, I was able right? to say, no, no, that's at the end of the month. But I oh, okay. was able to save up a lot of my uh, my days early uh, in my, my year. Basically my, my year is coming up in a couple of weeks from I'll have been at my firm for one year. So I uh, saved a lot. Man, of that's days, crazy. Days I remember that. I mean, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like it's been a year, but it totally has been. It doesn't. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to be going to Furman to help out with the mock trial camp. I was uh, right. Invited to do that. that. And uh, yeah, I love doing it and also can make some extra money on my vacation. So, um, yeah. you know, do, you doing can, something that I actually enjoy. You can doing, influence so. impressionable young minds just like ourselves 10 years ago. I guess it was 11 exactly. years ago. 11 That's years. 11 yeah. years ago. 2012. Yeah. I'm sure I will be referencing that when I'm there. But back in my yeah. you're gonna be back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it has changed a lot. No, nobody's really interested in this, but it has changed a lot. The the actual fabric of how the camp works. But I'll explain that to you off air because again, nobody's really interested sure. in that. But anyway, the point you, being, you never know, Scott. Maybe maybe this should just turn into a conversational podcast. Forget the movies, man. We just banter. <laughs> uh there's too many movies we got we got to talk about the movies but fair enough uh, anyway the point being a couple days off this week short work week and then i'm off all of next week so um nice. it's it's a fun time fun time but then you're also work. off later in the month too you're what are, you're living it up this month for three for three days yeah i'll be yeah. also going to box because again my my time off my vacation days reset in the middle of the month so then i can you know start over basically mm-hmm. um so it, it worked out well. Um, I don't know if I'll be so smart in conserving them um, next next year, but you know, only time will tell. It's an art, not a science. It is. It is. Uh, it, it definitely worked out this year. But anyway, uh, Scott, as mentioned today, our film is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the fifth film in the Indiana Jones series and the first not to be directed by Steven Spielberg. This time it's James Mangold who steps behind the camera, but in front of that camera, it's a familiar sight. As 80-year-old Harrison Ford once again dons the familiar attire of professor-turned-archaeological adventurer Indiana Jones. We begin with a prologue set in 1944 where Indy and friend and fellow archaeologist Basil Shaw, played by Toby Jones, have been taken captive by Nazis. One of those Nazis is astrophysicist Jürgen Voller, played by Mads Mikkelsen. 
and Voller happens to be in possession of half of Archimedes' dial, an astronomical calculator that can supposedly lead users to fissures in time. After a skirmish, Indy and Basil manage to get their hands on the dial half and escape. We then fast forward 25 years where we find Indy retiring from his job as a professor at New York's Hunter College. On his last day of work, Indy gets an unexpected visit from Helena, daughter of the now late Basil Shaw and goddaughter of Indy himself. Played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Helena is an archaeologist herself and wants Indy's help in tracking down the other half of the dial. But before Indy has time to give Helena much of an answer, the duo are attacked by henchmen working for Voller, who is now employed by NASA under a new identity. The ensuing chase is just the first step in what will become another globetrotting adventure for Indy, as he joins friends both new and old on a rollicking quest to keep a precious artifact out of the hands of the Nazis' sinister grasp. Scott, does Dial of Destiny send Indy off into the sunset with the same triumph with which he it was introduced in 1980, or would we be better off if Indy had retired, not just from his professor job, but his adventurer one, too? Yeah, somewhere in the middle, unfortunately. I I think I, I, I walked away with mixed feelings about this film. And I think I did still enjoy parts of it. Um, maybe even I would say I net enjoyed, enjoyed the movie. But I, I was mixed. And, you know, it feels that it didn't really necessarily do or give him a better send off than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull did, which I already think was many people viewed as a step down. And I would agree with them from the original three indie films from, you know, back in the eighties and I guess, not, I guess the early nineties for last crusade. I don't yeah. remember. It's 89. Also 80s, yeah. 89. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think also Raiders was 81, by the way, not hundred percent sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but I think overall, yeah, I was mixed. I, I will say that I felt like I wanted to like the movie more than I ultimately, like I went into the movie and I'm going to be like, critics are going to be wrong about this film. It's going to be good. It's James Mangold. It's Harrison Ford. And it's going to be better than what people are saying. And I, and I think to some extent that it is a little bit better than people are saying, but I do also think some of the flaws of the film are a bit undeniable. And I thought a lot about this over the last few days. I saw the film three days ago now at this point. I know you, you, you've had even a little bit more time than that to reflect on it. But I think a lot of the film's problems, not all of them, but a lot of them stem back to this film is way too long. This film is so, so long. Yes. And unlike with a lot of films that are, that when they're really long, the ending is actually really good in this film. Like, I think the ending actually works really well. The last act is pretty good. Not pretty good. I think the act, last act is very good. But the problem is that it, the the middle part feels so repetitive that I just sort of like, I understand this is the formula for these movies. Like we can go back and like side by side compare to Raiders, to other films in the franchise and you're going to see a very similar formula. But for like whatever reason, there was like one iteration of the formula, too many. Like this film is like at least 20 to 30 minutes too long, if not more. And I think you really feel that sort of around like the hour 45 two hour mark of this film, right when you're getting into the part where I'd say the film actually really picks up into the final act and it gets very interesting. I think like you're, you're feeling the weight of the film up to that point. And I think that that is the biggest flaw of the film. And a lot of like the other sort of side flaws sort of stem for that. I think there's other, there's other things where there's a little bit of, um, and there, there almost feels like a little bit of an emptiness 
in some of the in some of the set pieces of the film. I, I saw some people saying this on Twitter, and I didn't really know what they meant by that before I saw the movie. And then I watched it, and I also just felt like there's not there's some sort of liveliness that is missing in in the film, and I can't quite put my finger on. It. I don't know if you're going to be able to put your finger on it. Um, you usually do a better job, I feel like, with that stuff than I do. But like, just something felt like. It was it was missing some X factor. Maybe that's Spielberg. Like maybe it's the fact that Steven Spielberg is not directing this movie, and instead it's James Mangold. I don't like a hundred percent buy that fully because I think Mangold is like a is a pretty impressive director. Like the fact that his last few movies were Ford vs Ferrari and Logan. Like those films are impressive films that have a lot of heart and soul in them um, to an extent, especially like Logan on the heart and soul point. Ford versus Ferrari on the set piece front. So maybe I'm, I, I'm not saying that it's not that, but like, I'm a little bit confused. Cause like I would have expected Mangold to be able to deliver that based on his recent movies. But Spielberg is obviously an incredibly special filmmaker of which there are a few equals in the space. And he obviously at his core understands what India is and is able to sort of really enliven those. Films. like, even, I mean, I rewatched Crystal Skull in February at Tarantino's theater in LA, uh, the new Beverly. And man, I was like, I think people sleep on this. Like, this is not a great film, but like, this is a lot better than people say it is. Um, and I was never bored. I mean, I wasn't bored in, in, in Dial of Destiny either, to be fair, but like, I was never bored in Crystal Skull. I found a lot of the set pieces like really engaging, more so than some of the set pieces in this film. I think the flaws of the two films are quite different. Um, yeah, I was mixed. I, I thought Harrison Ford was great. Um, I have some thoughts in general on not on him specifically, but on like this this whole this whole project. This whole like let's get aging movie stars ethics back, back into the back into the theater, um, back onto the big screen project. Like I I mean I'm 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 I think we really should talk about that later on. I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is good. I was like kind of going into the movie thinking she was going to be bad. And I thought that she was more charming than I expected. I haven't seen Fleabag, so I'm not familiar with that. And, you know, I think she's one of the weaker parts of which Star Wars movie is she in? Is she in Rogue One? No, she's in Solo, right? She's in Solo. Solo yeah. She's La- she's Lando's droid in Solo. Mm-hmm. I think she's like pretty forgettable in that, which is like the only other major role that I think I've seen her in. I found her charming, if if not like her character a bit confusing. Like I don't think the characters is really that exciting, um, but I thought her performance was good. And yeah, then you know the rest of it. Maybe we'll get into bit parts here and there. But uh, or Mads Mikkelsen, I guess I should say Mads Mikkelsen. I thought he's a great like he. I feel like he's cornered the market on like villains. Um, your 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 sort of sign and and shaking your head. So it sounds like you disagree. I and mean, that's but... part of the problem, right? That he's he's cornered this market, like. You know, you hear that Mads Mikkelsen has been cast as Nazi Nazi doctor who thinks he could have won World War II, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, okay, on paper, that sounds good. And then you just watch the movie and it's like, well, yeah, in retrospect, that's like exactly what I would have expected this to be. And it's not really that interesting. It's just Mads Mikkelsen doing another dastardly villain he's I mean, doing another Lashif. i mean he's doing another yeah, Lashif. he's I mean, doing it, which i don't yeah. even think Lashif is a great villain to start with i mean a lot of people love that him and that that villain but you can go back and listen to our casino royale 
podcast mm-hmm. that we did a year or so ago, as much as I enjoy that movie, uh, I think his role is one of the weak parts. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just not about him in this sort of role, but I didn't feel like it lived up to its potential. Well, scary you got to know that was almost two years ago we did that did that episode. That's true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's just like it's but, been yeah. that long already. Oh God. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's fair enough. I, I think that he delivered what I expected, and, and maybe that's a disappointment, but it wasn't it wasn't a disappointment for me. It's not like, you know, he's not a memorable. He's not memorable like, you know, your Temple of Doom villain, whose name I can't remember, to be fair. Um, but obviously I, iconic, I think fair to say, if not problematic. Um yeah, and like your various. I mean, that's the thing with Indy. That like that's the thing with Indy. Like, can you tell me the name of any of the villains in Indy? Like, Belloc's not even the villain in Raiders. Like, that's like the one name I remember. Um, I don't know. I think th- I think that the villains were never really what's what is important in in the Indy films. Maybe, maybe that's a cop out. I don't know. But I thought his performance was solid. I thought, and I thought the central duo worked. But again, it almost feels like it's one of those movies where it doesn't live up to the sum of its parts. And I think that's where I'm mixed, right? Like, I still think I enjoyed watching the movie. I'm happy I, I saw it. Like, I was texting with a friend of the podcast, Jay. He just saw it today, actually. And he was like, man, I don't know. I didn't, he didn't sound like he, he liked it very much. And I'm like, I kind of get that. But also, like, I can't help but say that I also, I have mixed, I have mixed feelings about the movie, to be clear. But I also enjoyed it. So it's like, it, I, I don't know. I think that's. Yeah, this is my this is my franchise to say like maybe I'm happy with an average Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, I mean I definitely hear you on that um, because we don't have enough of these types of movies nowadays, and I really and they're all it. worse than this. That's the hard part. Yeah, like, all of yeah. those other movies are worse than this. That's what's a bummer. I enjoy this genre of movie quite a bit. You know, the swashbuckler, the yeah. the adventure film. You know, we had the the very feeble attempt last year or two years ago whenever that was with jungle cruise uh disney doing that two years ago and then Un- you, didn't uncharted. Uncharted. you didn't see uncharted you didn't see uncharted of see course it. yeah no no I never yeah saw and tomb raider back in 2018 right disaster so there have been many failed attempts and this did kind of feel like the last gasp and you know uh, I, part of me wants to just say well look a a solidly crafted Indiana Jones adventure film is not exciting, but it's better than, you know, a lot of other stuff that's out there because it is offering us something that we're not accustomed to seeing. So, you know, again, I, I, I should be able to just sort of, you know, nod my head and say, yeah, good job guys. We did it. Um, but it still feels disappointing in the end because there's just no excitement about this movie. There really isn't any excitement. And I do think the director has to be credited as large, a large part of the issue here. Yes. James Mangold is a good director. He's made a lot of very good, solidly put together films. Um, but his most two recent films are great movies in my opinion. Yeah. I haven't seen Logan, but I liked Ford versus Ferrari quite a lot, but it is a down the middle crowd pleaser, which again is, I mean, Indiana Jones is, so is Indy. are down yeah. the middle crowd yeah. crowd pleasers, but it is just missing that movie magic, right? That yeah, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark still has today. That Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade still has today, and that Spielberg is you know 
frequently credited with that he brings not just Indiana Jones, but in pretty much everything he touches. So you have to look at that and say that was a huge factor in this. And the other, the other thing is the length, right? As you're saying, the, the movie is way too long. And when you are simply doing a lot of stuff that we have seen before and doing it competently, sure, solidly, but not giving us a whole lot new, it does wear out its welcome. And, you know, you do mention that last part of the movie does get into something new, I guess. The plot goes in kind of a crazy direction. But in the grand scheme of the Indiana Jones movies, it's not it's, that I'd crazy. Say it's, it's not it's, that it's different. It's on par. It's on par with all the other stuff that's like supernatural, et cetera, of the other indie movies. But it, it did really work for me. I I liked I liked that. It didn't feel – and I, I think people were saying like it's like – I mean, I guess I didn't see many people saying this, but people were saying like, oh, they jumped the shark, like whatever. I'm like, bro, they like, they I do mean, this in every movie. <laughs> like again, every yeah, single one they do it. People's hearts being ripped out. We got faces melting off. Yeah, the Holy the, Ghost. The magical art is opened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so when you, when you stop and think about it, it's really not that far afield from what we get elsewhere in the franchise. But so, but, but I still liked that it was, Something crazy. Like, honestly, I found it funny. Like, what happens in the third, the final act of the movie is kind of humorous. And I was, like, chuckling at a lot of it. Which maybe is also a problem in and of itself. Because I do think they're trying to hit some pretty big emotional beats with Indy's character arc towards the end of this. I think it depends um, on what you're laughing at. I, th I think that they would be, I think you'd yeah. be on the same page with the film if you're, like, chuckling at the fact that, you know, big spoilers here. Big spoilers about to be uttered out loud for this movie. Like I think you'd you'd be allowed to and, and on the joke if you chuckled at the fact that all of a sudden they're in like you know third century BC. You Sicily. have planes like using machine guns. <laughs> exactly. Against, like, yeah. Like that's that Romans. is yeah. that is funny. But like if you're yeah. laughing when like the emotional moments are happening, you're like okay, no, maybe there's a problem there. I don't know. I I wasn't really except if you know again we're still talking spoilers, but this is just the the crazy idea of like Indy just being like yeah I'm just gonna stay here in. 212 bc or whatever and i mean that said i get if it you were it like shot sense. and think that you're like dying man you'd want to, to i mean like i would probably would i think i would i i get it it's just like it's crazy it, it's crazy to sit there like and knowing this is going to be like the last time for harrison ford like like is this thinking sitting there thinking is this really how they're going to end it with him like chilling with archimedes like you know <laughs> i mean that would be hilarious but like probably not like the battle guy. of syracuse yeah, 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 yeah um that would have been something wild honestly i kind of wish they do ended ended it had ended it there now because i don't think that the last five minutes of this is i found it strangely like muted right like again we're this is a huge character in the history of cinema and you know an iconic actor and performance you know to boot and it just feels like everything just gets wrapped up really quickly with a nice little bow we have you know the fun little hat moment at the very very end but it's like i just i couldn't help but feel like i expected more right after 150 something minutes or whatever i expected more of a Right into the sunset. I mean, again, that's how Last Crusade ends. And you I know, mean, that's the problem. Like, Last Crusade was the best ending. Yeah, it's looking like more and more for. like they should have just ended yeah. it there with him Blame Spielberg, Trump, man. riding off into the. Yeah, I mean, sure. Um, yeah. Sure. But anyway, I mean, the film is not, you know, it, as we said, it's very solid, it's very competent. But 
except for one scene, actually one action scene I thought I thought was terrible. I thought the visuals in the underwater diving scene were awful. I could not tell what was going on in that in that scene when he and Antonio Banderas drive down uh, dive down there. It it was it was rough. Um, so I thought that was bad. But otherwise, again, it's fine, but it's just all the stuff you've seen before. It's the chases. Scott, it's are you the saying caves. that they didn't get the James Cameron technology for this? Is that what you're saying? No, they definitely did not. <laughs> uh, closer to the Little Mermaid technology. But um, yeah. it's chases, it's caves, it's, you know, wisecracking, it's solving puzzles, it's creepy crawly things, it's the little kid sidekick. You know, I thought it was really interesting that they did that again. Yeah, I, I, I know After what how badly that I, I know what they're trying to do. That, I, that I what trying to do. Yeah. yeah, and I know what they're trying to do there. Like they're trying to. I mean, like I get it. I get what they're. I get what they're doing. I'm just like I can't. I'm. Why did you do that? Though? Well, yeah. I mean, this is this is the overall issue. I think is they're overcorrecting from Crystal Skull and maybe from other movies too. Like we're saying now for overcorrecting the Temple of Doom problem, but. They're trying to, because this they know this is going to be the last one, right? Or at least the last one with Ford. They are trying to, like, not make the same, quote-unquote, mistakes that they made in Crystal Skull and, like, piss everybody off. And so they want to do, like, sure. they want to atone for the past mistakes. Like, you have, it, it takes, like, a weird sci-fi turn at the end in the same way that Crystal Skull does. But you have, like, the character, you have Indy basically... Well, he he himself doesn't reject it, but the plot itself like rejects the embracing the sci-fi part of it, right? It's like, oh, this is something that happens, but now we're gonna go back to the real world, and that's where we're gonna end it up in the real world. Um, we're not gonna hide in the refrigerator. Um, no, let's not besmirch the hide in the refrigerator <laughs> nuke nuke scene. That's a fun scene. Yeah, um, but anyway. It feels like they brought in somebody like Mangold, right? Who's never sure. going to rock the boat. He's, he's, you know, he's I mean, when Spielberg gonna... drops out of your project before production starts, like who, who are you going to call? You know, like yeah. James Mangold is probably your best bet. Sure. And, but he's also not going to rock the boat again. And, and you can count on him to deliver a crowd pleasing film, which many sure. people would not say that Crystal Skull is. So things like introducing the new little kid sidekick again, it's like, oh, we want to sort of atone for the bad taste that was left by Shia. Short Round um, from, yeah. from Temple of Doom. And yeah, I, I just, I don't think it works. I think they should have not worried about all this stuff about how certain films or, or parts of the franchise are perceived and just tried to make a really good movie i mean we're gonna watch mission impossible here in a couple of weeks and mission impossible of course has a formula right they don't deviate a lot from that formula <laughs> their formula is um, let tom cook that's the formula yeah, <laughs> yeah. but they they wow you right you get yeah. wowed and at 154 minutes if you're gonna make a movie that long an action movie that long i want to be wowed and yeah. i was never wowed in this movie really frankly at all so Scott, when I when I saw the Mission Impossible Seven runtime drop, 163 minutes, I was like, "We are eating at the altar of yeah. Tom. <laughs> Let's go." Yeah, I mean, I have no no concerns about that whatsoever because I know we're gonna have some like crazy yeah. crazy stunts, and they're gonna keep topping them themselves. But they're basically they're I, gonna they're doing they're doing the Uncharted. They're doing the Uncharted two train stuff. It's gonna be it's yeah, gonna be right, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, but Scott, 
to talk about the cast briefly, I, I will say just right off the top, I agree with you. I think the best part of the movie, perhaps unsurprisingly, is Harrison Ford. Yeah. Um, he may be 80 years old now, but he still got it. And um, any, any, you know, doubts, I guess, about him being able to produce at his age. Um, oh, thank God, because he's got more movies in the pipeline. He's in the new Captain America. He, he replaced... Mm-hmm. Uh, who is it? Who? Oh, he died. I'm forgetting his name right now, but played Thunderbolt Ross. I'm forgetting his name, but he, he's replacing. Him, oh, right? um, William Hurt. Yeah. William Hurt. Yeah, he's. Re- I think he's replacing William Hurt um, in that role. I did see. Sorry, I, quick aside. I did see where he was like to Anthony Mackie or something. He's like, let's shoot this shit. Just like, <laughs> talking about Captain America or something like that. I was like, oh my god. He stays winning. Um... <laughs> he really does. But anyway, Scott, talk uh, talk more about maybe him and also Phoebe yeah. Waller-Bridge, who plays his sidekick here. Um, his I don't goddaughter. Know you, yeah. yeah, his goddaughter. His sidekick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, sure. I don't know if you want to mention his the de-aging stuff at all. Uh, because I, I, I do want to mention the de-aging stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I maybe on par with all of my thoughts on this film, I'm mixed on it. Because like people were complaining that the visuals were bad in the first scene. Scott, call me, call me out on, call me on BS. Like I didn't think what people were saying. Like I didn't, I didn't have the same experiences as people. Like I, I didn't think it was that bad. I don't think I thought, it was, were, I thought it, was, it was fine. It was fine. I don't think it was bad. I was also not blown away by it because I could look close and see like. But okay, that's the, but that's not. the thing. Like here, here's the thing. And like this is this is just like inherent an inherent issue with the technology with like actors and like CGI and then like I, I get like it is, it's just like. If you look closely, it's not going to it's not going to pass the sniff test. Like that's just the truth. Also, because you know what he's supposed to look like. You know what he's supposed to look like, and he's acting like as if he's eighty years old, even though he looks like he's fifty or his eighty year old voice. There, this there's a scene where it's actually just a faraway shot in the beginning where he's like running across. He's the like top hobbling. Of the train. Yeah, he's like it, hobbling. It was yeah. a video game character that I was yeah. watching. Like it was, it was bad. That, that I, I I know what scene you're talking about. I think yeah. he, here's my take though, and like if you're gonna do this. And you're not going to cast someone younger. And and I get in this situation why you're not doing that. Because, like, Harrison Ford played this character when he was younger. And this scene is set after that. Like, this scene is, like, set after Crusade or whatever. Like, I, I think. I could be wrong about that. But I think this scene is, like, set somewhere in, like, around Last Crusade-ish. Because it's still, like, the end of World War II. And Last Crusade is is during World War II. Yeah. Um, and so I get why, like, fundamentally, like, you can't have someone else play it. But here's what I think. And call me crazy and, like, soulless. But if you're going to do this, just body double him. Just, like, don't even bother having it be him. And just CGI his face on afterwards. Like, I know that sounds, like, also ghastly. But, like, I think that, like, it, you're not going to change the way his face looks, whether it's him or not. I don't, like, unless I misunderstand the technology. Like, that's, like, how you feel visually looking at it is not going to change. Other than the fact that like this person can now act like he's forty instead of eighty or whatever, so I just think that like if you're gonna do that, just like let the give the poor guy a break, like he's eighty years old. And I think this is my overall issue with part of this and his character. It's just like why, 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 why are we having Harrison why? Ford be the star of an action adventure movie when he's eighty years old? He can do it. He clearly can do it. He did it in this movie. But I'm just like, the guy is 80 years old. I mean, come on. He's not Tom Cruise. 
and Tom Cruise isn't 80 years old either. I mean, but like again, I think the answer is because Crystal Skull went so poorly. Like, I don't know that they would have tried to do this if not for the reception that that film received. Well, I mean, the idea was that Shia was going to take over, right? Like, I know that. Sure, right, yeah. You know, the Shia stuff. There's other stuff issues. Aside, there, but like, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, they obviously what they want the franchise to continue. Who knows where the franchise is going to go from there? Like, best bets, probably they're going to like some sort of like soft reboot and do like a young Indiana Jones, and, like cast some really young actor and do some like Disney plus show. Like that's my bet. If they, if I had to bet, like that's how they'll do it. And if it's successful, they'll make it into a movie or something like that. But I, I just like, they, they're they obviously they wanted to make another indie movie because they wanted to right the wrongs of crystal skull and give him a proper send off a la last crusade. I, I, I do understand that, but it's like it's really hard to make a movie when your star's eighty years old, like like this when your star's eighty years old. Like it just is. It's like really hard to do that. And it, and Harrison Ford is doing his best. He's the best part of the movie. Don't get me wrong, but like, I just I just find it at times like, man, they really have this guy running down the street and like riding a horse through like old like nineteen sixties Manhattan or whatever. Like, man, this is this is tough. Like I can't. I just sort of like felt bad for like the whole project. And then like I saw someone later talking about like, it's funny, Disney is the only person, is the only company making making like big movies about like people growing old and having, and like having dealing with their like, with like the the realities of their lives or whatever. Like they're, they're talking about like Luke Skywalker and, and Han Solo and the Star Wars movies and like putting, putting indie and in, in that sort of canon of, of people and then i saw another tweet like immediately after saying like someone needs to tell disney that like not every person grows old and regrets like their life to sit like messes up and regrets their life decisions or whatever and I, I thought that was a really funny juxtaposition of tweets i don't know if i like fully agree with either of them because i feel like disney's is like out of i do like yes they're making movies about aging men um dealing with their life's choices, which I think is not a fundamentally bad thing to explore. I think that is interesting. And there aren't other companies doing it. The problem is, is like this, the, the like impetus for that is because like we got to roll our franchise out and make another billion dollars or something like that, which like doesn't feel like it's quite right. I don't know. I don't know. But Harrison Ford is great. Um, he, he is great in the film. And it's, I don't know if it's a compliment to the film or, or a criticism of the film that he's the best in the film uh take take that for what you will he's 80 years old and headlining an action adventure film an indie movie but phoebe waller bridge is all like if you call her sidekick goddaughter i think it, i think what they do with her character at the beginning works like i think this whole notion that she's like you know she's his goddaughter so he feels an emotional attachment to her obviously we're getting the backstory of, of between him and and her father um who you mentioned at the at the outset um shaw i forget basel that's his name basel shaw mm-hmm. and I think that whole connection bit works. And the fact that like, he's not out here trying to have another adventure. He's getting dragged into it by her. And, and like this sense of responsibility he feels to Basel and what he did. I think that like really works as an impetus for the plot, but somewhere along the way, this like, I think it's fine that her character's motivations are like to pay off debts and like make money and like sell the antique there or whatever. And like, I, I think that's fine. And that works, but somewhere along the way, like her character just sort of gets dropped. I think like she, something feels like short shrifted around ha- starting around halfway through and it fell off. But I did think her, and it, it kind of coincides honestly with the introduce of this like sidekick character 
who Teddy, I think is his name, played by Ethan Isidore. And, you know, I, I, I don't really have any thoughts on that. I think it's a weird decision. I don't know why they did it. Um, I think in character, really. I mean, they're playing it for comic relief, right? But I don't really fully get it. It doesn't seem like it makes too much sense. And I, and I think those two things sort of coincide. Uh, I, I think also it's the point in the movie where I first started to really feel the length. Like that car chase in in Morocco is like, it, how long is that scene, Scott? It's so long. Like, Most of the action scenes go on for yeah several minutes too long. Yeah, and, and that that one was the first one where I was like, this is like, this is this is really long. Like I don't. It felt like the scene was 10 to 15 minutes long. Like, why is the scene that long? Like, that's crazy. It was crazy to me. Um, and I think that that was not, that was a little bit of a turning point. I also think, and this goes to your point of, about one of the scenes that didn't really work for you, just speaking on this character point, like when they go to like die, dive down and recover the other, whatever the thing that's going to lead them to the second half of the thing is called. I don't remember what, too many device names. I don't remember what they're called. Yeah, it just um, it has the instructions. Again, it's exactly. MacGuffin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's instructions. Like, I think that scene, don't need it. Just kill that whole part. Kill the whole part of the movie. Antonio Banderas was completely wasted. So. <laughs> After the movie, I was like, I can't believe they did Puss in Boots like that. What did they do to my boy? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think I think that, that that whole section of the film, that sort of part of the second act of the movie, I think it's, it's when Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character of Helena really falls off. And it's when the movie, I think, really starts to to be slug. It becomes sluggish. I found the movie to start to become sluggish. Like I just don't. I don't understand why you can't go from Morocco to Sicily. Like obviously, I understand how they did it in the plot, but like, why can't you just do it? Like, why can't you just go to Sicily after? <laughs> like, you know, what's stopping you? Yeah. No. I mean that that's a good that's a good point. It almost feels like the in in uh, in John Wick. Uh, in the recent John Wick movie, they how they have the entire sort of uh, you know part with Scott Adkins, which like is a complete sure. side quest. Of course, that was a great addition to the amazing. movie because yeah. it was entertaining as hell to watch. But this was <laughs> yeah. not. Um, but, but I think that's a fair point, though. Like I, John Wick is long as hell, dude. This is such a long yeah. movie. But like, they're if you, if constantly you, one-upping themselves. One hundred percent. And like I'm saying, like if you're saying like John Wick needs to cut thirty, I mean, like yeah, then you kill that scene. Like you kill that scene, and it's. You don't need it. It's okay. Like it, it sucks to lose it because it is it is so entertaining. And that is the difference between that and and this, to your point. But like it, you know, they did it because they had an idea and they let and they wanted Scott Atkins in their movie and to do something crazy with it. Like that's whereas like this, they like they guess they wanted Antonio Banderas. Like at first I thought his character Ronaldo was gonna be like Jacques from Raiders, like the the, the, the pilot. But he's like he dies in the movie, right? Does he die in Raiders? It's gonna be the Zorro tie-in, right? Like it was right there in front of them. Like how did how did they not do it? But uh, maybe maybe that was actually part of the thought process that was like, oh, here you have another guy who had a some you know not iconic to the same level as Indiana Jones, but also had a somewhat iconic performance as like this swashbuckler. Probably never really got to go out the way he would have wanted to because the last Zora movie was not that well received. Maybe I'm reading too much into it here, but uh, I, I think, that's, that's, I think you might be reading too much into it, but like, I think yeah. Spielberg, there's some connection there, right? Like didn't, cause it's an, cause Zorro is an Amblin movie, right? Like it is like a Spielberg joint. So like it, it, there's my, there might be something there. It might be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway, he was wasted. He's barely in the movie and 
doesn't have anything to do. It's, and a, it's a cameo. It's ultimately a cameo. It's like, yeah. what is this? What Spoiler is this movie for? He dies. So to Indy, this is like, like the whole point of that is like, it's kind of a joke to Helena. And she's like joking around afterwards and be like, oh, that's not so fun and exciting. And Indy was like, well, my friend was just like executed in front of me. But like, it doesn't really work. Like, honestly, that, that just doesn't really work for me. The emotional stuff just did not really work very often in this this movie for me. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I didn't quite enjoy Phoebe, Phoebe Waller-Bridge as much as perhaps you did. Uh, number one, I don't know if I can take her seriously as a dramatic actor. She just has something about her, like a whimsical quality a about she has her. A, she has a smugness. Yeah. About her. That like, right. I see her as a comedic relief type type character. And so... I do. I mean, I like the idea of, oh, well, you know, you initially think she's she's there to help, but, you know, she, she's keeping you guessing for at least some of the movie about what her intentions are. And is she really trying to, to help Indy or is she just using him to get what she wants? But to your point, I think that kind of goes out the window about halfway through the movie or so. And they don't really commit all the way to that. And then she does just become... You know, essentially the sidekick that Shia LaBeouf's mutt was in the the last yeah. film. So, um, yeah, that that didn't really do much for me. It really, performance wise, it really was all about Harrison Ford for me. I, there wasn't anyone else in the cast who stood out to me, except for John Rhys Davies, who you know has a has sure. a great two scenes. You know, coming back as, as Sala as Indy's buddy from the. So we we got to cancel you too. I thought it was crazy that they did this, by the way. He's playing an Egyptian. Brought him back. <laughs> He's playing an oh, Egyptian. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, but that's been the problem from the beginning. But well, um, I know, but I'm like, why did they double down on it? You know, they didn't have. Yeah. <laughs> what are they? What are, like? What I mean, it would have been more distracting if they had brought back if they had made a different actor him. But well, you know, sure, you, you just, just don't bring, bring, you just don't bring the character back. I think yeah. that's the answer. Yeah. But again, again, this it does. You know, we're throwing it. They're throwing in the kitchen sink to try to make sure that everyone's happy at the end of the day. Sure. Um, that was one part of it, I guess, which came off better to me because I think he is charming in the role. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it it you would lose nothing if you cut that part from the movie. Certainly, you would. I mean, it's also like it's nothing. It's nothing, right? Like yeah. he's in it for like less than five minutes. Yeah. Um, Scott. You know, we talked about the action somewhat. Um, there's a bunch of really long set pieces um, mm -hmm. early on in the movie. And then we kind of end up with this extended battle sequence that's going on. Uh, again, when they are transported back in time, mistakenly to the siege of Syracuse. and mm -hmm. uh, The Greeks and Romans are, are at war. Anything stand out to you in the movie as far as the action is concerned? Yeah, um, action. I, I I don't think I'm quite as negative overall. Like the, the length of some of the scenes, besides the one we talked about, um, you know, just just now, like the beginning. I saw some people complaining about the the length of the beginning, like the opening sequence. I didn't. I that didn't like really bother me too much. I, I guess I kind of get it, but I, I was so I was sort of just you know very locked in because I was excited to be sitting down watching and. And Indiana Jones movie, frankly, but I think this is this is actually the overall point, though. You know, separate from the length, this goes back to what I was sort of saying at the beginning, and I think this is maybe the, what you were saying earlier about the the X factor of having Steven Spielberg versus James Mangold, 
is that I, I did feel like the action sequences a lot of the time were where you could feel that, you know, maybe there, maybe it wasn't all there. Maybe there was something missing from, from this movie versus the others. I think that's where you can say it's like, it's not that there was anything specific about the action scenes, in, at least in my, for, in, in my viewing of it. There's not like, oh, it was missing this element or it was missing this element or it was this thing that was bad or that thing that was bad. It was just something like didn't completely add up and come together as that movie magic that you were talking about earlier. I think I mean, that's in the action scenes. It was that's what was missing. Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, you, you watch that movie one time and you could probably remember every single thing about the opening for the rest of your life. You know, the boulder, throw me the idol, I, throw you the whip, I mean, yeah. you know. It might, it might be one of the most iconic opening scenes action yeah. from an action movie ever. It just has that special sauce, right, which I think is Spielberg. I think that's, he, he knows, he knows how to, to stage that stuff. And it's, you know, they want that, they want to have that desperately badly in this movie. Um, that's why we have this really long sort of cold open, but it just, it doesn't ever, it doesn't ever reach that sort of, those sort of heights. I know, I know it's it not is. to the same extent either, but like even in last crusade, when they're doing a similar thing, like, like in Raiders, it's not a flashback. Like that opening scene is the opening scene in the present of the movie. Whereas like in Raiders mm -hmm. that, you know, you get this flashback to when Indy was like a kid. Right. And you get in, this in last crusade. Yeah. Sorry. What did I say? Yeah. You said in Raiders, but yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. In Last Crusade, you get this flashback. Yeah. Like, but that scene's not 20 minutes long. Again, I'm not really complaining about, about the length of the scene. I don't, I don't really, I didn't really find it to be that big of an issue, but it's not, it's like, I, I was just sort of thinking in like the, in, in maybe like a lull in that opening sequence as they're transitioning maybe from, I don't know, the castle to the train. I was just thinking, I'm just like, just, just like, I want to like this a lot, like even that earlier, but like something, something just isn't quite, there yet and you know i was thinking that for a large part of the movie unfortunately yeah i mean it's kind of boring honestly at times uh you know as as long as it is i was bored at certain portions and the action was honestly some of the times when i was bored because mm -hmm. you know it's just kind of like because harrison Ford's 80 yeah. years old <laughs> well that, that too. <laughs> but, but but i mean but i i do think like it's the length of that car chasing in Morocco is so egregious, Scott. Like, I'm sorry. Like, it's so it's crazy. Yeah. At the end of the day, I just don't think that they're, we're going to look back on this movie, you know, at the end of the year, let alone in five, ten years from now. And there's going to be these memorable moments, images, lines, like there are from any of the first three Indiana Jones movies. Um, yeah, I, I agree. But I think one thing, this isn't action specific, but I think it's, it's a, it's a, it, it fits into the conversation we're having. I found one of the things that really struck me in this, uh, as I sort of immediately, as I thought the movie is that not only are there spots in the film that, that drag and, and whatnot, because we talked about that, but one of the issues, I think, especially in a movie that gets this long with like this many discrete parts to it, is that like the the formula of the film sort of like really reveals itself? Yeah, and like it boils down to like Indy and plus sidekick are ahead of the villains. The villains catch up with them. The villains steal the thing that they found and like rinse like. But somehow like they get back out of there again, find the next thing, get stolen. Like that happens in Raiders. Like it happens in Last Crusade. Like it happens in all of them. 
but for some reason i think and that doesn't mean that it's like a good it's a good like plot device i'm not i'm not defending that as a plot device but i think when it happens like three different times in a two and an hour and 34 minute movie versus like in raiders where it's like an hour and 50 minutes and it happens like once or twice like i i think that you could you really start to feel the difference in that formula when you stretch it out over a longer period of time and yeah that's not like an action set piece type critique but i i think you really feel that um when you're watching this like the fact that they you know they get the they have the first half of the dial you know it kind of it gets taken from them these people are flying to wherever after morocco well and you know they got to get back ahead of them because they gotta go get the the frog whatever i I just like it it just happens too many times it happens again when they're in sicily like like it was supposed to and he was supposed to destroy the dial Mm -hmm. because basil told him to and he never did and i don't even know if i quite understand why uh he never did that scott because it belongs in a museum yeah i guess that's I guess that's the reason. But well, if it belongs in a museum, then why does he have it in his dusty storage closet for twenty five years? Like, oh well, that's the that's the college's storage <laughs> closet. But yeah, I, you know, but still, it's that's not a museum. So well, it's 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 not a public museum, but like it is a museum yeah. of artifacts in the archaeology department. It just doesn't seem like it's being well preserved. I guess it's just kind of underneath some tarp inside a, a dusty storage. That's room. probably fine. Um, it's not. It's not in the uh, Museum of Natural History in. in in new york or whatever right yeah but of course scott you know too with raiders there's the old bit of well if indiana jones doesn't is not in this movie everything happens. nothing nothing yeah. happens actually it, it might be better right because the nazis open the ark and hitler sure. will be with them and hitler dies or whatever and, and then world war ii ends basically but that's true because uh, that movie set you, in like the the mid 30s right or yeah whatever. yeah what do you think about uh that as applied to this movie, what do you think happens if um, Indiana Jones is not in this movie? If the the Nazis get the dial, they unite it and they go back. It, it seems like they would probably still end up back at the, the siege of Syracuse. Right. And then what happens there? They probably create some kind of paradox. Right. So it, it probably actually would have been worse. You think so? I mean, does Indy really do anything in the movie to, to make matters worse? For, like, he doesn't blow up their plane. He gets shot down by, like, the fucking ballista, right? So. True, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> the Greeks yeah. slash and Romans do that on their own, but... Yeah, uh, I, I, I I think that's largely in line with, <laughs> with the other films. Like, I'm not sure that much is different. I think maybe... I guess if Indy's not there, like, they probably don't even find the dial to begin with, right? Like... Because it's in store, like could be well. If Indy's not there, like right, because Basel would have destroyed the dial already, right? Like he was gonna. Right, yeah, it. I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's difficult to know how the logistics would work yeah. there. But anyway, I just thought it was a funny question. No, Scott, no, but, but but I think that's maybe like. Yeah. Yeah, but like yeah, so basically, I think that's <laughs> Indiana Jones franchise is going to go down as like the story of history's most disposable archaeologist, yeah, disposable yeah. hero. Um, so funny. any fun before we wrap up, Scott, any final thoughts on the the ending? You know, again, we've we've talked a lot about it already, but basically they go back to the siege of Syracuse. Um, the Nazis are defeated and Indy is like, no, I'm actually going to stay here because I want to see, you know, this is kind of my dream. Right. I, I've been wanting to preserve all these historical artifacts um, for all this time. And now here's my chance to actually see the history that I've been studying uh, play out. And also there's nothing left for me in the, the 
present day, right? My son's died. Marion left me. You know, he's on his own. He's retiring from his job. It's like, what what do I have left? Um, I think that's, I think that is, I think that is effective, honestly. I, I, I liked that. I think it made a lot of sense, honestly. I mean, you think about what's been more, like what has been a bigger part of Indiana Jones as a character throughout the whole franchise is like, exploring and finding these artifacts from ancient times and so i i think that that actually makes a lot of sense that that's the that's the direction he goes i find it really affecting that you know it is that he essentially there has to be some sort of intervention on you know helena shaw's part to get him onto the plane honestly i think it's a great gag that she just like clocks him and knocks him out um sort of like he did with mads mickelson at the beginning of the film in the flashback i thought that was so funny um to me but but it, it leads into this scene at the end of the film, and I think this is as much as I, I I find that sort of like soliloquy affecting. I think that the tough the tough thing to sort of close the loop on is this notion that like family, specifically Marion, if you're talking about the end of the movie, is is like such a critical and important thing for Indy. Like obviously his dad is. I mean, there's a whole movie about his dad. Right, Last Crusade is, is a movie about his relationship with his father. But I I had a hard time totally buying in to the end of the movie because even though I've watched Crystal Skull recently, granted, and, and like Raiders and Crystal Skull are the movies I've seen most recently in the in the franchise, I don't even get like Marion as like a super important character to him. Like you don't really get that sense. Like I understand that like, the canon is that you know they love each other and they're married, right? Like I get that, but it's just like not who Indy is. You know what I mean? I'm, and I'm not like hashtag not my Indian it, it here, but like it just like I don't think it totally it totally works out when the sort of climactic crescendo of emotion in the film is that he's sort of professing his purpose and his love for this character who you never buy really in, in the rest of the franchise that she's so important to him or that frankly, even love is that important to him as like a, like romantic yeah. love is like that important to him as a character. And well, I think, that, and I think that ultimately it not, it's not that it, that it doesn't work or it rings hollow. Cause I think like the idea of like stagnation and old age is like a real thing to contemplate, but like the sort of final note of him enjoying this like retirement and life with what he has left with his with his wife and the and the grief and the loss that they share. It's just like not that big of a thing of his to his character to me. And so it's hard to be totally bought into that. Yeah, I mean, and, and part of it too, again, the way that it wraps up uh, is like instead of really him having to reckon with the emotional part of this right like you know he's reflecting on oh i don't have anything left in the world blah blah blah, all this and helena is just kind of like no you have to come back because it's going to create a paradox in you know the the space-time continuum or whatever if you stay here Hmm. not like oh you need to come back because oh hey there's marion who loves you or whatever there is something still for you in this world blah 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 blah. like which says both right I kind of, but like, it just feels like the other part is the part that's emphasized more. And then again, this is part of my problem is it's just so abrupt the way that it kind of just ends in this last sure. scene. It's like, 
Marion shows up, and I mean, maybe this kind of is going along with your point, but it doesn't feel like necessarily. I mean, yes, it's it's kind of hang, hung over the movie, but it doesn't feel like this is this big sort of catharsis because there's like one scene earlier in the movie where he shares with Helena about his son, like what he would change. Like she asked him, like, if you could go back in time, like, what would you change? And be like, I, I tell him, I'd tell my son not to go, not to enlist or whatever, because he's going to break his parents' heart. He's going to drive the divorce. Like he says all these like very deep and emotional things. And I think that's, that's real and effective. Like that's like the one real like scene that sort of ties that that ending scene ties back to or you get a reference point for and it's probably just not enough you know yeah uh it's not enough uh for me again i just kind of was like that's it like you know when when we get that last little note with the hat being pulled back in or whatever yeah i wanted more after 154 minutes i feel like we deserved more and harrison ford deserved something a little more triumphant than that sure. for his send off of, you know, 40 something years of this 50 something years. Of this great character. Um, all right, Scott, I think we can move into wrap up at this point. Uh, what's your favorite scene or moment from dial of destiny? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I think for me, it's going to be towards the end of the film. Like when that first moment, when you fully realize where they're going, like it pans down and shows you the, the, the Roman boats, CG in Sicily. Like, I was just like, oh, man. I can't, like, I should have seen this coming, probably. But, like, wow, that really worked. And I just think that that whole scene, like, really was awesome. Um, the level of production and effort in the movie, which we haven't talked about. I know we don't typically talk about this kind of stuff. Scott, this film costs, like, 300 to $350 million to make. What? <laughs> it costs that much money to make. That's it's crazy. not going to make it back. Because it's it's made like eighty two million or something on this. Yeah, it made six holiday weekend opening. and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not making its money. Like it's a good opening if it had a budget the size of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was like fifty million. Sure. Um, but like none of these movies have cost them. I mean, like I know there was probably COVID related delays, and like obviously if you're making, you know, a Roman the Roman Empire <laughs> fighting fighting the Greeks on Sicily, like that's gonna. I get that that's gonna cost a decent amount of production budget. But yeah, it's just like, at least you, at least what I'll say is this. I think you see the production level in that scene. And I appreciated that. I thought that that sort of scene on the plane where they're still on the plane with Voller, who we didn't even talk about at all as a character. Like I thought to the sort of the, I thought where the performance really worked for Mads was in this moment where he's like, he's realized he's made this huge mistake and, there's just like the helplessness that he sort of displays in the scene of like, I don't know what to do. We can't turn around. We can't like, there's nowhere to go. Like we're going to be stuck in third century BC. Like I, I thought that was, that was good stuff from Mads. And I found the whole notion of like this plane getting shot down by Greek ballista is just so funny. And they're just like shooting machine guns down. Like who's like who are you even fighting, man? Like like what are you doing? I just thought that scene. I thought that scene was sort of awesome. Where and I think that you know as many flaws as we've talked about the film, like this is where Crystal Skull like sort of like dropped the bag for me. Like the whole alien stuff at the end of that movie. Again, I don't think it's out of character for the franchise, but it just didn't work for me at all. And this is sort of the opposite, where I feel like. There's some there's some 
emptiness in the film before it, but going back in time in this way really worked. And so I, I like the scene where they fly through the time fissure and end up in the siege of Sicily. What I will say, Scott, this isn't necessarily a favorite scene or moment, but one thing that I was trying, I don't know if I misheard or I caught this right, but is the notion of the dial of destiny, like Archimedes, like did he make it where no matter what you were going to be sent to that location at that time? Is that, is that something that they said in the movie? I don't know. I'm not like sure. He, like, on that he, like, he rigged it like they needed help. And so he rigged it to where like whoever is going to come is going to come during this fight in Sicily. I'm not clear on that either because I'm not clear on the reason that they ended up there in the first place. Like I think continental like, drift, Scott. Yeah. Something like that. Um, well, no, I, I think, I think that's what, that, that is what Indy says. That's what Indy says at the beginning. Yeah. I think that there might be something where like, again, None of it's real, guys. Let's just take a step back. None of it's real. The math is not real. But like, I think it's, I think it's more, and I think to me it makes sense, and it may be more interesting if it is this like time capsule. Like Jay was comparing it to Tenet actually uh, when we were texting earlier today, which I was like, I didn't get that, and he's like, yeah, maybe it was a bit of a stretch, but, um, but this notion of like, no matter what you do, it points you back to the specific time because. Archimedes thought that they needed help fending off the Romans. I think maybe that's a better explanation. I don't know. I just wanted to ask you because, like, I thought that's what I heard someone say, but I wasn't sure. Um, but anyway, I, I I really liked the scene, and it was probably my favorite of the movie. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's tough for me because I think I that part of the movie is the part that I like the best too, and the rest of the movie, like I said, I don't find it very memorable despite having seen it, you know, four or five days ago. So I guess I would just go with the same same scene that you mentioned, Scott, because sure. it's about all I remember. There's some um, of the stuff. Some of the stuff in the caves, I think, is really good too. It's just that it, the movie's just been long in the tooth yeah. at that point. It's the problem. And, and again, that stuff that stuff is familiar. Like there's stuff like that, and but that's why it's iconic too. I think it's familiar, and so that's why it's like, oh, they're they're hitting the nostalgia beat. Let's go. Let's put a score on it. What do you give this out of ten, Scott? Six point two. 5.8 for me. Um, it is adequate, I suppose. But the, the, uh, This is the thing. Like, It's a 6.2. I've talked at great length here about the pro- some of the problems I had with the movie. I still got to tell you, I, enjoy- I enjoyed it. Like I did. I understand that it's flawed. This is what I was texting Jay. Like, I'm, very- I'm mixed on the movie, but I-, I think I enjoyed it. Like I did. I, wouldn't- I probably wouldn't go watch it again at that-, at that length. If the film was like 30 to 40 minutes shorter, maybe I'd go watch it again, but... Yeah, I think for now, maybe I'll just rewatch Last Crusade because I haven't rewatched that one in a while. I mean, we need, again, we need more adventure swashbuckling movies. And I guess this yeah. is better than the last couple that we've gotten, but it's not, not, not anywhere near the heights of the genre. So, well, yeah, you, know, you know what's an unfortunate one that we have not brought up that is sort of also a swashbuckling type movie? Red Notice is, and, you know, we, we know we know well, that, that should is. do it for our review of that, but, but that's what i'm saying like it's still so much better than that that's what i'm saying that's what that is the sad part yeah like i watched that movie and it's it's a spy movie it's a little bit it's a little bit different on premise but like the set piece type work is very like adventure like action adventure swashbuckly but it's still like a star below, like or more but like a star to two stars below this film like that's the bummer like that is that is what we're working with here. Yeah. Uh, 
we, we need to raise the bar. Somebody, somebody needs to come, come out of the shadows. And, yeah, and Jur- Jurassic this. is basically another one too. Like, what are we like? What are we doing? I don't know, but much like just about everything else, it seems like in in franchise blockbuster cinema, it's the the future is looking grim. And on that note, Scott, we're going to take a short break because that concludes our review. Um, And we have some some new news about uh, franchise blockbuster (laughs) cinema getting even grimmer after the break. You're also going to be telling us about uh, a feature film that's coming out from uh, the showrunner of one of the biggest shows out right now. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, before the break, uh, I teased that you had some news about a film coming out from one of the showrunners behind one of the biggest shows out right now. Why don't you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't. I think we're we're both watching season two of The Bear right now. That is the person you are alluding to is the writer and showrunner of The Bear, so the creator. Uh, his name is Christopher Storer. Is not someone that I ever heard of before. I don't know if he's done anything before the bear but he uh i'd say the bear was a modest success in terms of popularity last year and it has it's been huge since season two launched here i think about two weeks ago is when is when season two launched and my understanding is that it's one of the biggest hulu new season launches in a in a while you know, like X Handmaid's Tale. It's like one of the biggest, one of the biggest launches. So I think it's a it's a big deal. Um, the Bear is right now. It's it's gaining a, a lot of popularity and a lot of a lot of followers. And Christopher Storer is sort of reaping the rewards of that as the creator of the show. And he's been tapped by Paramount Pictures to direct an adaptation of the Don Winslow novel, The Winter of Frankie Machine. So I I'm I'm not familiar. This is an adaptation of a novel. I don't read that many books, I guess. So it's maybe not a surprise that I'm unfamiliar with this. Of course, this is something that um, it seems like the book is sort of, it's not been in development hell necessarily, but like this is a project um, that has had a long trail of other people tapped to direct it, including Martin Scorsese, Michael Mann, even William Friedkin, uh, who was briefly tapped to direct it. So the film's been a bit all over the place, which, you know, has maybe not necessary. It's not always a good sign. But I think the fact that Christopher Storer is having such success, not only creating, writing, and and directing a few episodes of a show that is such an incredible mix of like both genre and like it is a cooking show, but also, frankly, a lot of time is spent not in the kitchen yeah. and about stuff that's like really nothing to do with cooking at, at all like it's it's not you know Interpersonal drama yeah exactly right there's a there's a lot of emotional stuff and i'm not familiar with this novel it sounds like i mean maybe not surprisingly because scorsese was once upon a time tapped to direct it it is frankie the person one of the, the subject of the novel the the winter of of frankly of frankie machine 
um, Frankie is a hitman for the mob. So there you see this the Scorsese connection. He's the hitman specifically for the San Diego mob, um, who's dragged out of retirement when asked by an L.A. crime family boss to oversee a meeting between two crime families, one from L.A. and one from Detroit. Um, the twist is that he realizes it's a setup to kill him. And so he needs to sort of, sh you know, shake off the rust and figure out a way to survive. And I'm assuming also get revenge as well for this setup. So it's an interesting because it's not, you don't necessarily see the immediate similarities between the projects. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I'm just intrigued that I'm, I'm curious why Paramount thought that Christopher Storer was the perfect fit for this adaptation. Um, I'm excited though, because I think it's cool to see what he can do on the, um, you know, in, in the movie format as opposed to the, the TV show format. So I'm excited about this. I think this is interesting. But, uh, you know, I think expectations are, are, you know, at a reasonable level. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting, you know, person to bring in for, for this, uh, this kind of story. Um, you know, uh, something that has a, has a distinguished pedigree, as you mentioned there, to say the least, in terms of the other talent that has been linked to it in the past. Um, I hope it's, you know, not a bad sign or anything that um, all of them eventually went by the wayside. Um, it, it se interestingly enough, it seems like Scorsese and De Niro were like sort of lined up for this movie and until the Irishman, like they, yeah, Scorsese and De Niro were sort of turned on to I Heard You Paint Houses or whatever the novel is. That's mm -hmm. that's, that's the source material for that. And then they were like, actually, we want to make this movie, not this one. So it seems like overall it maybe is not totally the fault of this source material, but it's an interesting situation. Cause obviously the Irishman was, you know, a pretty masterful, um, you know, story about an aging, an aging mobster. But anyway, um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully it's not I a mean, bad sign, but it could be. Yeah. I like the bear quite a bit. I'm only a couple episodes in the second season, but Same. I I'm think sure. it's That's great. It. Yeah. You know, he's really good characters and stuff like that. So, I'm down to see him, see him try and, and do something, you know, quote unquote original. I mean, it's an adaptation, but you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's something, it's a, something different. It's something different. It's something different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't say that, however, Scott, for the other story that um, I am bringing to the forefront on this week's episode uh, that I can't say that it's something different because it's not. Um, this is the news that Greta Gerwig, um, who of course, um, is the writer, co-writer and director of Barbie coming out in just a few weeks. Um, previous director, writer of Little Women and Lady Bird, an actress in her own right, um, has lined up her next couple of projects following uh, Barbie, uh, which again comes out on July 21st. Um, and she is going to be working with Netflix on a couple of films uh, adapted from the Chronicles of Narnia stories of C.S. Lewis. Um, yeah, uh, so th these, of course, people will probably be familiar with these, um, you know, fantasy stories uh, targeted at sort of a YA audience. Um, they were made into three films back in the mid 2000s to early 2010s. You had The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Frankly, I'd say even younger than YA. This is like teen. Yeah. 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 But um, some sort of variant on 
the the Narnia stories is is now being we you know we don't really know we don't know if it's a reboot of the stories that have already been told but you know those three are not the only Narnia stories that exist right this is a much larger universe that C.S. Lewis created so there, there's no way they're not getting her to direct the Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe like maybe I mean, I'm that wrong, would clip sense, it out yeah. but like. There's no way she's not directing that movie. It would it would make sense. And even though we just saw, I mean, we had that movie in 2006, I would like to see her have a stab at that if she's going to be doing this Narnia thing. Um, but anyway, Scott, I, I guess it's kind of a kind of surprising news that this is happening. I mean, to some extent, you know, she's already diving into the, the franchise IP stuff with yeah. Barbie, right? I mean, um, Little Women is IP. Sure. Also, yeah. Um, yeah. But Barbie feels like even a step further than that, right? Like franchise I, level. Yeah, for sure. I think this is going to be a big movie, Scott. I really do. I mean, as much as a lot of movies seem to be flopping just in general in the summer and everything, I feel like this movie has some juice behind it. I think they've marketed this thing perfectly. Um, social media and everything has really been all a buzz about it for months now. Um, I could be wrong, but we'll see. But anyway. Um, I think it's going to be big yeah. with a younger audience. I don't know about an older audience. Yeah, but you know, uh, you know, she started again with her small scale stories like Lady Bird, which was heavily autobiographical. You go back even further to her acting career; um, she was doing a lot of indie films and mumblecore stuff. I mean, that's how she got her her start was in the mumblecore, um, you know, subgenre. And actually, the first film which she has a directing credit on is. Nights and Weekends, which is uh, an older Mumblecore movie that she directed, I believe, with one of the Swanbergs, but um, with Joe Swanberg. But um, yeah, so she, you know, she's really ascended. She's a, tr a true success story in some regards, I guess, of going from the lowest of the low budget type in talkie she's a journey woman. dramas, yeah, to you know, working with massive corporations like like Mattel, like Netflix. Um, and dealing with some pretty sacred property. I mean, the, the Narnia stories are very beloved, even, you know, into today. Also sacred in a religious sense. Sure. Uh, yeah, they are heavily allegorical in a religious sense. But, um, but yeah, I, uh, I'm not super enthused by this news, Scott. Um, you know, of course, most everyone knows I'm a massive fan of Greta Gerwig, Little Women, and Lady Bird, two of my favorite films of all time. And she has a couple in her acting career that are also have that distinction. Um, I will follow her anywhere. And so I have the utmost confidence in her um, to do something with these Narnia stories. I mean, some people have rightfully pointed out that something like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, for example, is not too, too far removed from what she was doing with Little Women, right? It is kind of a coming of age story as well. It's about these siblings um, and, you know, it's set in this sort of wintry old timey type setting. I don't know exactly what the time period is, but. Um, well, it's, it's a fantasy world called Narnia. Well, yeah, but I mean, they, they go yeah, yeah, into yeah. the fantasy world, but they're living it's in World War II. World War II. World War II. Okay. So yeah. wartime. You know, I, I think the kids family. are sent out of England, basically. The idea is like they're sent out of London right. to That's live with their. Right to live with their family in the countryside because of the, the blitz basically. And they discover another world in their wardrobe. That's kind of the setup for it. Everyone has that experience, I think. Sure. But anyway, um, Greta Gerwig is going to be making two films uh, for Netflix somewhere in the Narnia universe. You know, Scott, this just kind of follows along 
with some of other the other recent trends we've seen with quote unquote indie filmmakers moving into the mainstream tentpole stuff you know you have barry jenkins going to be making this lion king sequel you have oh, chloe yeah. Zhao already making the eternals um just eternals nothing yeah you have other examples out there um as well of, of this sort of thing happening um sure like i was saying i'm not the biggest fan of it because i love greta gerwig i want her to make more of the sort of personal type stories that you know she made her name off of but at the end of the day, you know, Scott, Little Women was a literary adaptation. And it was an adaptation of something that I never in a million years would have thought that there could have been something fresh done with. I never would have thought, you know, I thought it would be a really, really good adaptation, but I never thought, you know, it would be what it was. It would be so such a transformative piece of art and become one of my favorite movies. So who's to say she can't do that again with Narnia? I don't know if the source material is quite as strong. Uh or as contemporary as she had to work with um, in Little Women. But I think Barbie's going to be an interesting test case to see what can she do, right? Because um, we're well, expecting... She, she had a lot more... Cre I mean, surely she had a lot more freedom with Barbie than she would get with... The I don't know. Netflix is pretty... I feel like Netflix is pretty liberal in terms of... No, I just mean like the sort... Like if, if she's going to adapt The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe... She's going to sure. adapt the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She's she was given free reign to tell a Barbie story. She has to get approval, right? But like, she's not adapting Barbie the novel. Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. But again, Little Women. She was adapting Little Women the novel, but she still found a way to do something new and interesting with that. Yeah. Um, so maybe she can do that with Narnia too. She's but I, I do she's think that time shift Narnia. Let's yeah. go. I do think Barbie will be an interesting test case because you know she's not working with the esteemed novel of something like Little Women, right? Or even something like Narnia. Um, is she able to make it contemporary? Is she able to make it? I mean, we're expecting a sort of satirical, you know, type spin on on Barbie, obviously. Is it going to have sort of the wit and, and wisdom of her other work? I think what happens with that may, will, will probably set my excitement level at a certain point for the Narnia films is it, I mean, in terms of setting it either high, if Barbie turns out to be really, really successful or perhaps lower, if um, she seems to be selling out, I don't even want to entertain that possibility, but um, you know, I suppose it I, is. I'm not sure that it's going to be satire. I guess that's where I'm, my understanding of the premise of the movie is that Barbie and Ken are like kicked out of Barbie land or whatever. And they have to go like live in the real world. Maybe it's gonna be satire. I don't know. Satire is not like the the like definite vibe I got off of like what yeah. it's going for. Maybe not the only thing it's going for, but you know, it's gonna be something subversive, I guess, is what I was thinking. Uh, I, I am mentally preparing myself to for it to not be good. Um, because I I there's no film that I I'm 100% confident. And again, I made my mistake with Rise of Skywalker a few years ago and saying, no, I have no concerns that it's going to be bad. And then it was it was hard. So what can you say? But um, yeah, that's so true. It's not it's not a trend that I love. But if there's anyone who I feel like can break break the mold and break through, it's Greta Gerwig. I, I still have infinite confidence in her, even if both this latest trend in her career isn't the most exciting one to me personally. 
Here's what I'll say. I guarantee there will be at least one movie that weekend that you enjoy. I don't know which it's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be Barbie. I don't know if it's going to be Oppenheimer. I don't know if it's going to be Theater Camp, which I believe comes out that weekend as well. Well, Uh, I I actually already enjoy Theater Camp, so... (laughs) I don't know. I can't remember if Theater Camp's coming out that weekend or the weekend before, but... um, I just wanted to get out there that theater camp is coming out in the next couple of weeks, which you should absolutely go check out as well. If you have the time in Still between, your, in, in between your blockbusters, like mission impossible and Barbie and Oppenheimer get the nice palate cleanser of theater camp. Still one of my favorites of the year for sure. Definitely check out oh. theater camp. All right, Scott, that should do it for this episode of the podcast. Where can our listeners find you on Twitter? Right, At Scott. Shelton two zero one three. And I am at Scarby Dent on all platforms. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Even if you can't support us over there, however, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you will be back for our next episode of the podcast on which we will be reviewing one of the best-reviewed films of this year, Celine Song's romantic drama, Past Lives. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.